You're listening to Five Things with Lisa Birnbach. Hi, it's Lisa Birnbach, and I feel I want to do a safety checkup on all of you. Are you all right taking care of yourself? Exerting your voice and point of view? Overexerting yourself? Feeling like there's so much to do, maybe too much? I hear you. I hear you. I wish I could see you and give you a hug. I miss hugs more than anything. You know, we've been living in this crazy, emotionally draining, painful time for several years. And the digitization and virtualization of our lives has together pushed us all into our own individual cones of silence. I predicted this. I predicted this 20 years ago. You know, we don't need quarantine to be isolated. Quarantine or social distancing just magnify our sense of being alone. I can tell you that between the time Exhibit A and then Exhibit B graduated from high school, the reliance on cell phones took away certain openness to meeting people in real life in the real world. And this statement is not about my kids. It's about how quickly life has changed in the last decade. It's only gotten harder. Exhibit C's grown-up life had just begun a year before the world shut down. I am sympathetic to the feeling of treading water or being in limbo, which is a bit like what is happening to her and her peers now. So let me gently remind you, it was only two and a half years ago that we observed with horrors the murders at Marjorie Stoneman Douglas High School in Parkland, Florida. A school shooting is an unspeakable tragedy, as we know. Schools are where kids go to feel safe, where teachers go to feel safe, because routines are great. Structure and routines are part of what makes the school day work so well. And school, as we know, is one place where kids, some kids in the population know they're going to get a real meal. It may be the only real meal they have. The trauma of the Parkland murders, of course, exists in a trough of other traumas and tragedies. When we remember Parkland, we remember Sandy Hook Elementary School and Virginia Tech and the shootings at Columbine and so many others. There is no way to completely get over these calamities, even if we weren't there. We're part of the collateral damage. And let me just say, people have sort of wise guys set out of the side of their mouths. The one good thing about quarantine, there have been no school shootings. Think about that. My guest today, Jeff Vespa, is a well-known portrait photographer whose documentary, Voices of Parkland, shows no violence but allows survivors of the school shooting to express what they did and how they felt. Jeff's film will be one of the pieces of evidence about the hardship of the decade of the 2010s. Let me just say, I interviewed Jeff in Los Angeles in February. We recorded the interview at Eleven Studios. And again, life was stressful, but it wasn't coronavirus stressful. It wasn't George Floyd and Black Lives Matter stressful. It was just the level of stress that we were becoming adjusted to. Coming up, Jeff Espa. Hi, it's Lisa Birnbach. Welcome back to the show. 
Jeff Vespa, the filmmaker who was in the studio with me, started out, I feel he started out as a photographer. He was one of the founders of Wire Image and uh, had a very distinguished career as a portrait photographer. He became a filmmaker. He has a new documentary called Voices of Parkland. This is a movie that doesn't hit you over the head with special effects and loud noise. It hits you in the gut with the quiet terror, emotion, and very matter-of-fact um, downloading, I guess, of the experience of having been at Marjorie Stoneman Douglas High School in Parkland, Florida, two years ago on Valentine's Day. Welcome to the podcast, Jeff. Thank you. I'm glad to be here. When did you go to Florida to go talk to the kids and faculty and parents who were affected? Well, right away, um, the the actual day of the shooting, um, as we all kind of recall, you know, David Hogg was immediately being interviewed and, you know, coming out against the shooting. And and right away, you know, the kind of reporting of this tragedy was started to be completely different than most, which, you know, usually it's about the shooter. And so David Hogg came out and Cameron Kasky came out. And that day when I saw them talking about it, I instantly knew this was like the way forward for gun control because, you know, after Sandy Hook, things actually took a turn for the worst. You'd think it would, have, you know, helped gun control, but actually uh, hurt it um, immensely. And most people were just kind of over it after Sandy Hook. We just thought, you know, we can't win this fight. And uh, I wasn't ever involved prior to Parkland, but it was something that I always cared about. And I knew it's something we needed to do something about but just felt like I wasn't going to waste my time because it wasn't ever going to happen. And so the second I saw David, I was like, oh, my God, like, this is it. This is now actually can be a part of this because this these kids are going to lead the way. And I do a lot of video. You know, I started out as a photographer, as you said, but um, I've been doing tons and tons of videos for brands and things like that for the last, you know, six, seven, eight years. And that's been the thing that's been the majority of my time. And so that's a kind of storytelling that really helps people tell their messages in short, with short videos, 30 seconds, a minute, two minutes, stuff like that. So I immediately knew that I could help them with that, you know, doing video. So that was the first thing I thought. I mean, that very, that, that night. And then a day or two later, Emma comes out with her speech, and I was like, oh, my God, this isn't just, you know, these kids. It's like everyone at this school. They're incredible, you know. So I just – that kind of, like, made me understand, like, even more that this was something that was going to be different than in the past. So I immediately went down there uh, 10 days – I was there 10 days after the shooting. Um, it happened on, like, a Wednesday, and I got there, like, on the next Friday or something like that. And did you call the school? Did you call well, this Cameron's is where parents? Came, no, or? this is where it got – it's kind of crazy. The next day after the shooting, it was like a Thursday, I put up this post on Facebook saying – I came up with this idea of a campaign called What If. What If is a – It's a, it became a viral video campaign and that was the idea behind it. And uh, um, so I, I knew I wanted to do these what-if videos where kids would say stuff like, you know, what if instead of thoughts and prayers, we had policy and action? Or what if Congress couldn't take money from the NRA? Things like that. It, but, you know, knowing that I would talk to the kids and they'd come up with their own what-ifs and all that stuff. So I came up with this idea. And on the, the, you know, the next day after the shooting, I put it up on Facebook that I wanted to film 
kids in Los Angeles doing these what if videos in support of the kids in Parkland with the idea that it could become like a national campaign. And at some point I would go to Parkland too and get them to do it right as well. So I put this up on Facebook as like a call for parents, you know, p- parents that had children, you know, my friends that had kids to say, hey, if you have like a 16, 17, 18 year old kid, you know, meet me, you know, on such and such a day, I'm going to do these videos, blah, blah, blah. That was scheduled for like the end of the week or something like that. And so I got immediate response from people that said to me, like a a woman that's a really close friend of mine, but I didn't realize she had moved to Parkland, which is crazy. So she responded right away saying, I saw your post and you don't realize this, but I live in Parkland now. And I was like, what? Like you live in Parkland? That's crazy. And she's like, yeah. And I know a bunch of kids. I know kids that were in the rooms. They're close friends of mine, blah, blah, blah. Like, she's like, you know, you can come here and you can stay at my house. And I was like, okay, <laughs> I'm there, you know. So I still did the thing in Los Angeles. So we filmed, you know, whatever, a week later, I filmed the thing in Los Angeles. And while I'm flying there, I told one of the, my guys that I work with to edit the material, one of the one of the videos, because one of the parents wanted it for their kids. So I said, edit the video just so I have it and I, we can give it to them. So I fly to Parkland while I'm like in the air, not only did, so this woman's name is Jen Goldman Friedman and, and her and another friend, like a friend uh, uh, of mine who's a publicist connected me with um, Wendy Zipes Hunter, who also lives in Parkland. She's from New York, but now she lives in Parkland as well. She's like a celebrity booker for like magazines and, you know, publicists as well. So she happened to already be working with David and Emma and all these kids. So it was crazy. Like, all of a sudden, between Wendy and Jen, like, I was connected to, like, every single kid I needed to be connected to. Like, instantaneously. It was crazy. That's amazing. One thing that uh, struck me and I know must have struck a lot of people uh, was that within days, as you say, the most articulate young people I had heard without stammering, without you you know, without like this, like that, well-spoken, concise, thoughtful leaders. Are all kids like this? Does tragedy turn people into leaders? I mean, they are not your average high school kids, right? Well, we'll I mean, just because there's been other school shootings since then, and of course, plenty before then, the answer to that question is no, all kids are not like these kids. And no, all kids would not do what these kids did. And that's something that I absolutely learned by being there, I mean, it's a very special community. A- anyone knows this that lives in that area, but like if you live in the area, you know when you have kids, you move to Parkland. Everyone knows this school is like the greatest school. I mean, so it's a thing. Like it's a real thing in that community that people know. It's a magnet for families uh, who move there because the education yes. is good and yeah. the community is good. I mean, it's as good as any private school you'd want to send your kids like you know we here in los angeles or even you know i'm from baltimore like we always think like oh let's send our kids to a private school that's you know they're going to get a better education i mean people just send their kids to parkland they don't think about it because it's that good of a school well one of the teachers who is in your film is the ap psychology teacher i mean i'd never heard <laughs> yeah. of ap psychology in a high school before well, so this you're saying something that you're you're hitting on a point that you don't realize but so this is why these kids were so smart not just 
for psychology, but they have a crazy debate class. They have a crazy, they have film production classes. They have all these things that set them up to be these children that when this happened, they had the facility to do this stuff. David Hogg was a student journalist with the Sun Sentinel newspaper. So, oh, wow. So all of a sudden you're like, oh, okay, I get it. He's a student journalist. Like he's working for the Sun Sentinel, which is the newspaper and, you know, there. So all of a sudden you're like, okay, well, no wonder. Like, so these, these kids, kids were doing. almost semi-professional at their passions, whether it was writing or debating or filmmaking or music or whatever. Yeah, I mean, I wouldn't use the word professional because um, – but but I would say because the school is so good, they were – they had a lot of education in these areas that a lot of kids in that age group would never have. They actually had already debated gun control. Like they'd done a debate on gun control prior to this. So they literally knew this stuff already because they'd actually been talking about it. So which is, again, kind of a a crazy thing to think about that these kids already had this facility that most kids would not have. And, And it's not just the kids. The community itself is pretty extraordinary. And so many of the people that I met from there, it just, you know, has been, it's been incredibly enriching to my life. And these people are just wonderful people. How did you get everyone to trust you so quickly? You got there 10 days later and speaking very measuredly or emotionally, a lot of people broke down. They are telling you the story of that day in the school. They're telling you what it felt like to not see their sister, their brother. They're telling you that their best friend was lying with uh, wounds bleeding out. How did you get them to talk to you like that? Well, I mean, that's a that's a pretty crazy question. I mean, you know, what I was so you know what I was saying to you is like as I was traveling, you know, to Parkland, Jen and Wendy were like making a schedule for me to like have you know day after day of these interviews all in a row, and um, and my friend was my you know. Mike Wendell, who I work with, who was editing this, you know, what if video, and I'd made a deck, like a pitch deck, to the, for these kids, you know, showing them kind of what I wanted to do with them. So I feel like we were prepared, and there were people, you know, the people that were kind of connecting me to them were all people that they knew and trusted. So, you know, I'm, I've been a celebrity photographer for over twenty years, and one of the things, it's not the same, of course, but one of the things that I do what I have to do very quickly is get people to trust me. I mean, and after having done it for 20 years, you know, I I know a lot of celebrities. So, you know, you know, nine times out of 10, I already know them. So they trust me when they see me. But, but um, there's plenty of people that don't know me and I have to get them to trust me right away. And, and so I've, I've built up this ability to do that, you know, and I'm also a very empathetic person. So, you know, when you're with people like this, they feel that like it's not something you can fake, really. So they feel that. And I feel like they trusted me like right away, which was, you know, good, a good thing, luckily. Well, you were introduced to them yes. by people they had yeah. already met and trusted. Yeah. But yeah. yet, I, I sort of have this feeling of these very um, wounded young people, emotionally devastated. They're not going to school yet. They're still, my feeling is that... that I mean, some of these kids were they're traumatized. They're traumatized, totally yeah. Totally traumatized. Well, they I mean, sure, sure. Should, yes, and with every, you know, understanding that. Yeah. And that well, probably a, all the networks are down there and they're 
people from international TV crews and how I mean it must have been well, in a funny, way a I mean, kind of you've touched on a whole bunch of things there so like first and foremost like just to give you a comparison David Hogg and Cameron Kasky and Emma they weren't in any rooms that they saw people get killed so they weren't traumatized I'm not saying that they didn't have trauma from the event a lot of the kids had trauma from the event but they weren't traumatized the way that the kids were that were in the rooms so some of the people as you saw in the movie they were very traumatized they even said to me actually the very first kid um that you know gave me a testimonial which was dylan kramer and he he had not spoken yet about his at all his his father hadn't even heard the story about what happened in the room so when he told me the story in the room that was the first time his father ever heard it but he said to me before I even started interviewing him, he's like, yeah, I feel like I missed my chance. Like, I, I'm so traumatized afterwards. I couldn't talk to anybody. You know, the news was immediately contacting us, but I couldn't talk. And this is 10 days later. So this is the first time he's actually going to tell his story. So that was a huge part of it is that a lot of these kids just, like, couldn't talk. And, of course, yes, they were all being contacted by news media. But there was a lot of news media there, but nobody was there doing what I was doing. So that was really interesting. I was literally sitting in the room knowing, because we're reading every article from all these other places, New York Times and whatever, you know, as we're there. And and I'm just sitting there going like, why am I the only person that's here? Like, I don't mean here because there's a lot of news media, but I meant like, why am I the only person that's here to help these people? You know what I mean? And, and again, maybe there were other people. I don't know. Or cer- it just didn't feel like there was any certainly nobody doing what I was doing because I mean I was a part of this whole thing so I didn't see any other videos that came out. It turned out there was another um, student that started doing something similar to what I was doing, but I didn't find any other like news outlets. So later on, people did like the Sun Sentinel did and stuff like that. But at the time, I was like, "What?" I was like, "Why am I?" And 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 not only why am I the only person here? Why? Is it me? Like, why am I the person here? Like, how? This is the crazy. It's just bizarre. Like, it was so strange. So, and so we're at Jen's house, and Jen has this little TV room that um, you know she has made at, in their house, and and the walls have like blue. It's like blue suede. Like, it's it's to you know dampen the sound in the room and make you know make it's it's a small room. It's not like some like big movie theater or something it's just a small tv room and but she put this blue suede on the walls and she has curtain there's a bunch of windows in the room but she put these blackout curtains on in the room so i always film on this black my whole idea was always to film on this black background so i didn't even bring a background with me but this room was like absolutely perfect so we put down the shades the the back it's already pitch black essentially in the room anyway i put up one light i had one camera one microphone you know it's just me there's nobody else there and these people are just like looking directly into the camera and and you know i wouldn't i didn't do interviews per se i literally was just had kind of a couple of prompts like what happened on the day what happened the next day and then when i started later when i started talking to parents it was like what happened at the funeral? What you know? What happened? You know that, those kinds of things. And I would just say like, what happened on the day? And they would talk for half an hour. Like it was not me. Like and you know. And then I would listen to what they say. And then I would you know maybe do a couple follow ups here and there just to get more detail. But but people just needed to tell these stories. They needed to tell. It, it didn't matter if I was in the room or not. It gave them this excuse to just like blurt it all out. 
and and they needed to tell it and and I can't tell you how many parents afterwards were just like thank you so much for like being here and just allowing my daughter to have a voice you know she you know this is like super therapeutic like every and and the way that the parents feel now like about what I did and how I gave their kids voices I mean I've become very very close with these people and have stayed within their lives I mean Dylan Kramer is a perfect example I you know I mentored him for for some time he moved out to LA for like six months and we worked together you know there's other kids still in Parkland that I'm working with there's you know some of the kids from the March for Our Lives we're actually working together on a project coming up this weekend so like there's a lot of stuff you know this very much kind of got me embedded with these people so not only did they trust me right away which was amazing but from that point on we kind of uh, some of these people can't almost became like family members and it's just a very weird thing because I never certainly not something I never thought about when I went down there that this would happen, you know, in my life. I mean, I also didn't think that two years later, like the first day I go onto the plane to fly down there, I'm not thinking, oh, two years from now, I'm still going to be doing this. Like it just kind of became something that's become a huge part of of my life, you know, Um, really interesting. Did you feel you had the psychological gifts or some kind of understanding of what you needed to do for them to make them feel better when they finished talking to you? I mean, I feel I feel like, I mean, I don't know if I would say it's gifts, but I just, you know, I do feel that, that I am an understanding person. And, and I feel like when I was there, I kind of understood, you know, what stupid questions not to, you know, like, don't say these things or don't do, you know, I kind of understood how to act around them and treat them properly. And and I feel that they got that. I mean, one of the things we certainly talked about, not just for them, but for me too, was self-care. Because at that moment, you know, we were all be, there was a lot of talk about the activism of it all and doing things, you know, to, to help move this movement forward. But after them going through these traumatic experiences, you know, that's a lot of energy to expend and and even for myself we were all talking about like look we need you know this is a long fight we need self-care we can't you know for me for sure listening to these stories especially when I came back because I I went in February I came back in March I came back in in April everything was done between February and April so all this stuff is very you know fresh with these people but all during that time you know we talked about that and making sure that you know we kind of cared for ourselves. And and then, you know, so in April, when I came back and finally talked to to the parents, which some of the parents didn't even talk for a month. I mean, literally didn't talk for a month. So I wasn't even going to try to even contact them in February. Like that just didn't even cross my mind. But as we started doing this, you know, in April kind of rolled around and the March was over. We'd done the March and I went back down to to Florida. I was like, okay, now I, I can't not talk to parents. Like I have to talk to parents. And that was just the most I mean you want to talk about being you know on the floor I mean I the first day I did two parents I don't even remember which two were the first ones at this point but I was so depressed and so upset like at that night I just like laid on you know like on Jen's floor I just like laying there for like I couldn't move and when I came home I was like depressed for like you know weeks because it's just so hard to listen to those stories I mean obviously for me you know, sure, I was depressed and it was hard for them. You know, they don't have a child anymore. So, of course, it's far worse. But 
But just talking to people and hearing those stories, and you know, my by the way, my wife was pregnant at the time, which made it even more like crazy because I'm like, I'm leaving my pregnant wife to come and do this and help these people, which you know is a good thing to do. But it's also like, wow, like I'm leaving my pregnant wife to do this. So, and and we're talking about children and death of children and and. Uh, and it's just, you know, I have younger children, but these people were, most of these parents are my same age. Mm-hmm. So it just kind of made me think like, wow, like, you know, if I had started earlier, like these kids would be the same. My brother has, you know, kids that same age. And it just makes you kind of, you know, obviously think about your own life and, you know, the fragility of it all. And and so, yeah, it was very, very difficult. Um, the emotional aspect of it, it was really, really hard. It was very, very hard to watch the parents, I have to admit. Um, Alex's father, you know, you, you're you're watching pain incarnate as these parents are trying to process what happened. Of course, we've all seen Fred Guttenberg, and he's become a very familiar face. Uh, he went to the, I think he went to the. He was Kavanaugh's. He was at Kavanaugh's. He was at the was Kavanaugh at the hearing. State of Union, yeah. Right at the State of yeah. the Union, he's been, I would say, disrespected by the current administration. You know, it's not political if your child is killed because guns are easily procured. It's not really a political – to me, it's not a political issue. I'm sure it is to uh, Mitch McConnell, but – and I don't think he has kids. And if he does, I don't think they admit it. But you don't – you know, I mean, it's – the loss of life is so fragile the one thing the one thing so many homicides have in common is that guns are in the house guns are available guns are everywhere when you went down to parkland or even thought about it before when you did your your what if film did you did you care that much about gun control well yeah i mean i i like i said earlier like it's something that i always felt that i would love to do something about but never got involved because I just felt like it was not going to be possible. I mean, I got, you know, I was like kind of excited when I heard that Bloomberg was going to give a bunch of money to start a, you know, a gun control, you know, organization and things like that. So I kind of knew and I, you know, I've known about Brady, like, you know, I knew about Brady. I knew about background checks. I knew, you know, things like that. But I didn't really know a ton about it. But I, it's definitely something I cared about. Mm-hmm. I mean, I've never had a gun. We've never had guns in our house. My parents never. My mom, actually, when we were kids, didn't even want us to have toy guns. You know, and I just don't, I don't believe in guns at all. You know, I, I understand we have the Second Amendment. And I understand that, like, we're never going to get, you know, there's more guns than people in the United States. Right. So we're, we're not getting rid of guns. And I'm not even, you know, no one at this point in the world is even trying to get rid of guns in the United States because it's kind of an impossibility. So even like when the NRA is like, they're trying to take away our guns. It's like, really? Like, is it really? Like, is that, that's ever going to happen. Like, it's never going to happen. So, I mean, they just use it as a talking point. Like, it's easy for them because all they have to say is, we're going to they're trying to take away our guns and then everybody goes you know up in arms but on our side the people that want to actually pass like reasonable laws about guns it's actually incredibly complicated so even for people that are you know been at Brady or been at other gun control groups for years like 
volunteers or people that join, you know, join as members and things, unless you really are like doing a lot of homework, it's hard to even understand all the ins and outs of the, I mean, it's so unbelievable. It's hard to There's understand. so many things and it's what, wonky. Well, so it's like yeah. not even something that people can wrap their heads around. It's so hard, you know. Well, as you said earlier, after Sandy Hook, the number of applications for gun permits went up. Yeah. If you could explain that to me, I'd be very grateful. I don't understand because how they that... think. Well, I mean, there was an article today about Trump and how you know there's this joke that the NRA has that says Obama was the best gun salesman they've ever had, like ever, like of all time. He's the yuck, best yuck, gun salesman uh-huh. because because when he was elected, people thought using the they're going to take our guns away mentality people went out to buy as many guns they could because they thought like like it was you know like it's like uh you know hurricane you know like a hurricane like all of a sudden oh wait we better run out and get our guns before the toilet paper and water right so i mean and so for the eight years of obama there was this incredible because i was reading this article about how remington went bankrupt basically and they're talking about how the all the years of obama was this incredible rush of money because everyone was buying guns. Like, it was just phenomenal. As soon as Trump has been in office, the gun sales have plummeted, like cratered, because everybody, no one's scared that they're going to lose their gun, so there's no gun sales. Anyway, it's really, really interesting. So that's what it's all about. It's this fear, the NRA using the idea of fear of losing your gun to stoke gun sales basically is why that that is. Did you expect that this would be a part of your life's work for who knows how long? I mean, I feel like I knew it was going to be important. I, I had, So part of that pitch deck that I mentioned to you, I had come up with, so we had this what if idea, right? I knew about the what if idea. And that those would be short, 30 second to one minute little PSAs. They ended up being put out on the March for Our Lives, you know, Twitter feed and stuff like that. And now this also picked it up. And so in the the very first one we ever did, that now now this picked it up and it got eight million views in the first twenty four hours. Wow. And which was huge. And then event you know, cup we did like a bunch of these. We did like thirty of them or something. One of them David Hogg did and the NRA made a response video because of it. So it was pretty nuts. I was like, oh my God, like I made something that is making the NRA do a, make a response to. We were Little old me. Yeah, yeah. We, we, were, we were making noise. I mean, it, it was on Good Morning America. It was on CNN, BBC. It was like all, all over the place. I mean, the first person with a sign, a protest sign, when we went to the march, the very first person we saw holding a sign had a picture of David Hogg with hashtag what if over it. Wow. And I was like, Okay. This is I mean, so everyone in the kind of gun control world either knew me or knew of the work that I was doing. So I knew right away, like even when I was flying down there, that this was obviously important because ten days later, I mean, it feels like it was a lifetime, even though it was ten days. Like these kids were all over news media by yeah. ten days later. They, yeah. It was massive. I think by that point, I can't remember if it, even ten days later it happened yet. But I think the march had already been announced. I mean, it was, there's you know it was already like happening. So we knew. I mean, Emma, everyone in the world already knew who Emma was. Yes, you know? that's it was right. a big deal. So I, I knew bought was, my daughter socks with yeah. Emma Gonzalez's <laughs> image on them. I right. mean, seriously, yeah. they have become people that we turn to. Yeah. 
for inspiration and, and with hope. And well, it's, it's like, uh, you know, uh, Thunberg, you know, like yeah, you know, Greta, Thunberg. Greta Thunberg too. Yeah. Yes. Well, it's it's really taught us that maybe we've all been too complacent yeah. and we do need to listen yeah. to them. So what I had come up with this idea called portrait journalism and – I had kind of thought about trying to do it for some other stories that happened prior to Parkland. And as soon as this happened, I realized that I could do this with Parkland as well. The first thing I thought of was the what if thing. But then I was like, oh, wait, I can also do this portrait journalism thing. So I put together this deck that had the what if in it. And I said, here's what we're going to do. So the kids come in and I say, this is what we're doing. We're going to do a what if video. And I explained what that was. And I said, and then I'm going to take your portrait and I'm also going to do a testimonial. You're going to tell me your story of what happened in the room. And so the, my idea behind this portrait journalism thing is to do to do these testimonials where I take a portrait of the person, a photograph that is a close-up portrait of them. And they're very like, they're very beautiful. They're not meant to be like glamorous, but they're just beautiful because they're just faces of people and they're black and white with a black background. And I and then I film them exactly the same way in black, you know, on a black background with the same one light, same setup and everything. And so the idea about the portrait is if you're like flipping through a magazine or something, they're they're very undeniable. You can't really see this a photo like this and turn the page like it's very striking. And and then the videos, the same thing. They're looking directly into the camera. You can't really turn away from it. There's something about it. So I knew because of my celebrity background, I knew I could place these portraits and these videos with a major news organization, which I did. Two weeks later, it was actually the Oscar issue of People Magazine. People Magazine ran on People.com a bunch of the videos. They ran four pages of the of the portraits. So that was huge, right? So I knew I could get one, I could help them directly by doing this kind of PSA campaign. And then I knew I could also get the word out in other ways. And so the idea was, you know, get the portraits in a magazine, get these videos on a, you know, in a news outlet. But then there's like an afterlife. I could do an art show with the portraits and, and you know, I could do other things. And eventually this is what happened with the footage that I made Voices of Parkland with that testimonial footage. I made this documentary. Now, that wasn't the original plan, but that's what's so cool about the way I just knew it's kind of this modern, you know, it's the way things are done now. Like there's you make content and there's like a thousand different places to put it. So you kind of have to meet people where they're at. And so certain types of people will go to an art show. Certain pe- types of people will go to a doc documentary. Certain types of people are going to read People magazine. So we just have to keep telling these stories over and over and over and over and have them all over the place so people can't avoid it. And and that's our kind of, you know, superpower. Like, you know, groups like the NRA have, you know, millions and millions of dollars. We don't have that. But what we have is our stories. Mm-hmm. And if people like me can go out and tell these stories over and over and over again, we can actually make a difference. And hope that uh, eventually people will get the message. Yes. That's all we can yeah. do. And that's it. Yeah. It's very it's very uh, simple. It's It just – all you do is let them tell their story in a very – um, artless but very artistic way, and it's very it's very profound. And I thank you for uh, making it, and I thank you for caring, and thank you for coming in. Yeah, thank you. I really appreciate that. I really appreciate you having me here. And again, it's just another way to you know get this kind of message out and and, and have people like under you know listen to these these people's stories. 
Yeah, it's hard to it's hard to get all political when uh, you're hearing the story of a father um, wishing he said goodbye to his uh, wishing his last words to his daughter were "I loved you, I love you, honey." You know that that's all there is. If you're a parent, you get it, yeah. Jeff. Jeff. Okay, now I'm going to just kind of change my voice a little and say, Jeff, this show is also an uplifting show about we're be happy right now. Right, we're going to try. Yeah, we're going to go. We're going to shift gears. Okay. We're going to pivot and talk about the five things that make your life better. Well, you have to. You maybe you should. I'll, I'll prompt yeah, you. Yeah, maybe you should prompt. Me. What about number one? What is the first thing you think about when you think about what you need in your life and what you love in your life? Well, on number one, the list that I gave you, the number one was the students and families in Parkland that have affected me. Um, I mean, when you first gave me this list, the first thing I thought of, of course, was my children and my wife, because of frankly, like. Without them, none of this means anything whatsoever. So, but um, you know, these the people in Parkland and the students and you know the families and even the teachers. You know, Mike Marino, who's oh in the movie. Oh my gosh, the I bearded, mean, Mike, the bearded yeah, teacher. Yeah, yeah, Mike Marino and I are like buddies. Like we text all the time, and I mean, you know, it's just funny like to be in the pl- place that I'm at. And just be talking, you know, I'm talking to 16, 17, 18 year old students all the time. Like I'm texting them all the time. And and that whole thing just makes me feel very enriched. Like the the relationship with those kids and feeling that I can be a mentor to them because a lot of them actually want to make film and do things like that. So the one, mainly the ones that want to make film, those are the ones that I've been able to really bond with and mentor because they're just, you know, we, we, ha- we like the same things and they're always like showing me their videos and their photos and things and like, hey, what can I do better? And, and all this stuff. And I've even hired some of them to do things, which is pretty cool. Um, but, yeah, and then the parents, too, like Adam, you know, who's Dylan's dad. I mean, I just – I feel like I, he's been in my life for – you know, it's so weird. It does not feel like I met these people two years ago at all. Feels I mean, like you've Oh, yeah, I feel like I've known them forever. And they feel yeah. like they're like my old friends. And they, you know, they're so important to me. Now they absolutely, I mean, for for sure the Kramers feel like family. I mean, they absolutely feel like family, especially because Dylan, you know, moved out here for a, a time. The, you know, just the, the relationships that we've been able to build over this past two years and the people that, you know, there's just, it's so enriching. Like it's enriched my life in such an incredible way. And I, and I actually said this to these kids while I was doing it. I was like, look, I'm here to help you and interview you and do all this stuff and help the cause. But you're also people <laughs> like you're, you're regular people that also have other things that you care about. And, and, I, and, and I care do. about you as people. Right, exactly. Yeah. So I'm, yeah. I'm not just here to like get your word out and then say, you know, see you later. Right. It's like, I care about you and let's, you know, I'm going to help you with your career, help you in college. Or, I mean, I've written, you know, a bunch of kids, I've written them, you know, letters for, you know, to help them get into college. And, you know, I've helped tons of, you know, so that's, it's just a very enriching thing. And, and it's kind of wonderful, you know, uh, and, and I, and I love that, that that has also come out of it. There's just so many other like benefits yes. to it, you know. And oh, I see yeah, that. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Okay, let's go to number two. What is number two? You got to tell me that. Oh, <laughs> I wrote again. Oh, oh, Amakasa. Yeah. Amakasa. Um, Amakasa, yeah. Uh, so, uh, my wife and I are crazy sushi snobs. We love, love, love sushi. And in Los Angeles, um, 
so amakasa is um, like trust the chef, I guess is what it, like, right. it's supposed to be translated to um, or trust me. And it's essentially you go to sushi restaurants and you do not order. Um, they just bring you, you know, whatever is like the freshest or like their thing. It's not really even freshest. It's the That's, greatest hits, yeah, right? It's not even the freshest. That's like the wrong way to say it. It's more like because when you go to an amakasa place, first of all, it's very traditional Japanese. So you're not like dipping things into soy sauce and like they they're like painting the soy sauce with a brush on top of the <laughs> right. on top of the sushi like and that's it like that's what you're getting and um the amakasa is like they it's you know it's like 12 dishes or 15 dishes and you know it's sushi but sometimes it can be other little like dishes that you know Japanese cuisine and we went for my birthday actually we went to um to like the ba- like the craziest most expensive one in town which you've been wanting to go to for a long time in beverly hills and um and uh it's that place actually totally mind-blowing like way beyond like there's incredible incredible places that like i could take you to and your mind would be blown this place was like so far beyond even those places i mean it also was super expensive so it better be but um it was one of these things I've never experienced this in my life. You eat a piece of food and your brain is like scrambled. Like it's so <laughs> unbelievable what you're yeah. eating that you're just like you just can't even. You're like, what is happening to me? Like I just ate this. I have crazy umami thing. Yeah, all over I me. I mean, it's just you're like, what? What just? I mean, it, you can't even think. Like it's so nuts. So wow. Yeah, and I and and I just think there's something about it too that it's not just. Of course, it's not just the food. There's like an artistry to it, which I've always. Ever since I was a kid and started eating sushi, like when I was like in, you know, like 18 or something, when I was a kid in New York, um, I just, I love Japanese. I just love that, the cultural aspects of it. And when the amakasa thing is so amazing, the way these guys just do what they do, it's just. It's art. Fa- yeah, it's phenomenal. It's totally wow. unbelievable. So, yeah. That was a great description. Yeah. Number three, the Los Angeles oh, yeah. Dodgers. <laughs> Yeah, well, uh, the Dodgers are the best. Well, I I grew up in Baltimore and and the you know the Orioles. You know, I mm-hmm. went to the Orioles as a kid, and, right? And um, loved the Orioles, of course. You know, and I mean, in Baltimore, like opening day, like half the kids in school aren't there because their parents like take them to opening day. So like that's, that's how nice. important yeah. like you know the Orioles are in Baltimore. Um, but yeah, I mean, for years I kind of didn't. You know, I was like. I don't know. I didn't really get into it as much, you know, but about seven years ago, which is when they actually started their run of being in the playoffs every single year, um, I really got into it. I I actually had um, opened this. I I had opened a restaurant and it had a lot of issues with it, which is normal for anyone that's ever had a restaurant. And it just was getting me down so much. And somehow, I don't know how it happened, but I kind of went to one game and I really liked it. Like, I hadn't been in a while, and I went to a game, and I really liked it. And then my cousins came out, and I took them to a game. And then after, like, three games, then I was like, well, I want to go again. And, like, after three games, that was it. And I kind of tell people that now. Like, if you go to three games, you're hooked, like, forever. And I took my wife because she, she ne- she's from Los Angeles, born and raised in L.A., never been to a Dodger game ever, wow. whole life, which I was like, how is that even possible? But um, she's first-generation American. Her, both her parents are, you know, emigrated. And so they didn't know baseball. Like, they right. never took her. So I said that to her. I was like, you know what? I'm telling you, you're going to come and you're going to love it. And 
she now knows like all the players' names. She knows like all the stats. Like she knows everything. Like crazy stuff. When like you know, like a certain pitcher will be pitching who usually likes to work with a certain catcher, and like that certain catcher is not catching. She'll be like, "Why is this catcher catching?" Yeah. I'm like, "I'm like, I love you yeah. so much. Like you're the best. Like the fact that you know that like that's not the catcher that should be catching today. I love you." And then the last part of it is my dad. The he died like three years ago, and the week before he died or it was about two weeks before he died he had he came out to visit us we we had no idea this was he was going to die this kind of happened out of the blue but but two weeks before he happened to be out here and thank god because i don't think the last time i'd seen him was like maybe i don't know thanksgiving it was a while before and and it was great because I at least got to be with him. And we went to an amazing Amakasa place. Uh-huh. <laughs> it was uh-huh. very exp- another very expensive one, but not as expensive as the one we went from. Our- amazing place. Um, and it was the most he'd ever spent. We, he always comes out here and we always go to these great places, but it was the most he'd ever spent on sushi. And we were kind of blowing it out. I mean, not knowing, obviously, yeah. what was going to yeah. happen, but we kind of did this. So, And we went to a baseball game. And he was with his wife and, you know, I was with my daughter and my wife and we're all sitting there. It was a day game and I have pictures of this. And I, I stopped and smelled the roses. I literally yeah. was in the seat and my wife and child on the right and my dad's on my left. And I stopped and smelled the roses and I looked around and I said, I'm, I'm literally about to cry because this is like such an important moment in my life. I literally said, this is all I need. Aww. My my parent my family is here with me, and we're sitting at the Dodgers game. That's all I need. Like it just all uh, that matters, you know. Yeah. And so I'm like so thankful. I know that's you know it's and and I'm sure plenty of people have like very personal stories about the Dodgers because you know people you know have been fans for their whole lives. But you know I have this really personal story about my life that that matters to me. You know that's connected with with them, and so. You know, first it kind of started this mental health thing, but now it's just become this really enriching part of my life. And I love also in L.A. that it's like a topic of conversation that you can bring up with anybody and you can actually you can meet people that you you actually have something to talk about with people that you don't know, you know. And so there's something really connective about it. And I think that's why people like care about the Dodgers so much, you know, so much here. That's a beautiful story. Thank you. And how great that you yeah. you took that moment yeah. for yourself. Um, great artist, number four. Well, so uh, I, I listed Marcel Duchamp and, and uh, Eugene Age. Eugene Age is a photographer that was in the turn of the century in Paris and died in around 1927. And... Um, I was introduced to his work actually back in the 80s when I was introduced to his work. He had uh, Bernice Abbott is a photographer that used to work as Man Ray's assistant. She was in Paris during that same time. She rescued all of Ajay's, not all of them, but uh, all all of his work that he was can, owned at the time. Like when he died, she rescued all his work. And and uh, eventually, um, the uh, Museum of Modern Art has has it now. They have it all. And in the '80s, they did a giant show where they produced four hardcover books, which is just unbelievable for any artist. But four hardcover books for the show, which my teacher at the time, when I was in high school, had ah. my photo- my high school photography teacher, and I just flipped out over his work. It's all documenting Paris from the turn of the century to 1927. So it's these 
unbelievable photographs because it's literally and he would do this we're talking thousands of photographs like there's so much documentation just from him of Paris in that time frame that like you can pretty much see anything you need to see buildings you know what way anything looked in that era unbelievable stuff so I just loved his work so much and for years he was the only artist that I cared about at all like I didn't really wasn't like inspired or by anyone else but later I you know when I learned more of other artists and learn about Marcel Duchamp like I just he's an amazing artist I mean his, his whole idea wasn't really about the visual even though all his work is very visual but his whole work he basically is the godfather of all modern art like Con- conceptual, conceptual art, art conceptual art right? like without Duchamp there is no conceptual art so he changed literally changed the world with the way he thought his thought process about art about making art especially at the moment that he that he was you know did all these things it was absolutely insane what he was doing and my favorite piece of his is um and this is like a little there's another little personal piece of this um there's a piece of work that he called The Fountain. Mm-hmm. And in the 1917 Armory Show, he was actually on the board of the Armory Show and their whole thing was they would accept anything, right? So as a prankster that he was, he decided, unbeknownst to the other board members, he would submit a urinal turned upside down and call it Fountain just to test, to make sure that when they said they were going to accept everything, that they would. And he signed it, R. Mutt. Right. And so I had a really dear friend also who passed away who was an amazing fine artist. And um, when the first time he, he actually made a movie and the way I met him was I was a, I was a um, programmer at the Sundance Film Festival. And he, I mean uh, at the Slamdance Film Festival. He made a movie and I, I chose it for the festival. Anyway, I go to his apartment for the very first time and on his – you know, it was one of those boards that has all the names of the people in the apartments – and on the board for his number, <laughs> it was said our mutt. Oh, like he funny. told me the number, right? Yeah. So, so I look at the number and it says our mutt, and I was like, "That is hilarious, right?" So I go up to his apartment and I go, "Dude, that's hilarious that you have our mutt on your door." And he goes, "You're the first person that's ever mentioned that." Wow. Yeah. And number five, stories, making and telling yeah. stories. I think you've. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I think yeah. we get that. Yeah, yeah. I mean, look, it's my life. I mean, I don't. You know, that's what all I've ever wanted to do is, you know, make movies, you know, take photographs, you know, those and those things to me are, are storytelling. And besides my wife and my children, um, the only other thing that really, really, really matters to me is is telling stories. And and I feel like going through this whole process with the people in Parkland and making this movie Voices of Parkland, it really shows me you know, the power of it. I mean, you know, I always felt that there was the power, of course, that's why I do this. But when you can fly somewhere and have a dark room with nothing but one camera, one lens, one light, and one microphone, and you can make a documentary that's so compelling and powerful with nothing, I mean, literally nothing, you're like, okay, like you understand what the power is. You know, there is such a power in that. And and I just feel like that's just all that I've ever, you know, that's what matters. I mean, as an artist, like, you know, I started as a kid as an artist and I just kind of always figured, you know, tried to figure what I wanted to do. And eventually you know, I realized, like, you know, movies is what I want. And and uh, and I just it's the most important thing, you know, again, besides my kids and my wife, like because otherwise, you know, if I didn't have them, none of this matters. But 
but you know for my career and what I want to do with like every breath you know is is telling you know telling stories well how fantastic that you figured it out some people never do and Jeff it's really been great talking to you and uh, Voices of Parkland is very powerful uh, I recommend it. It is storytelling at its most stripped down and yet really full of of life and hope. Thanks so much, Jeff. Thank you. I really, really appreciate the opportunity. And now let me share my five things for this week. Number one, the press. Most people who enter the field of journalism want to do it to expose the truth. And as you see from constant bombardment of images, these people are brave. They're not making money that the kind of money that other professions make. And their jobs are difficult, dangerous, certainly They may not be able to come home for dinner. They may not be able to go to the school talent show. Their lives are very, very difficult. And when I see the police shooting and arresting reporters on live TV, it just, I sink. And if they're doing that, knowing that they're being filmed, they're live, what are they doing when they're not on camera? Without reporters and photographers, we would be ignorant. Without them, the powerful would be ever more so. They keep a form of honest pressure on the world they cover. They help protect this democracy. Number two, emotional support. Whether you rely on a psychiatrist, a therapy app, a support animal, or you're just writing in your journal, we all need emotional support. And we probably need it more these days. And I think there's no shame in seeking help, no stigma in my universe, in my extended universe. Everybody I know believes that it can be helpful. If you've never done it before, you may feel wobbly at first, but I salute you for making the effort. Number three, Alan Arkin. Yeah, the actor. He makes me laugh when I see his picture. Is it because I can't forget him and the Russians are coming, the Russians are coming, or the in-laws, Serpentine, Little Miss Sunshine, the Comiskey Method? It might be. A couple of weeks ago, I found this video on Facebook, and it made my day. I want to share it with you. Number four, farm to people. I'm a latecomer to this farm-to-table delivery service, but I could not be more excited about it. It's just fantastic. Honestly, their produce is so fresh and so delicious and tasty. They have cheeses, they have bakery goods, they have dairy, they have a butcher, a fishmonger. Everything is so easy. You can order as a subscriber or you can do it whenever you want. I get a weekly delivery. I've never found them to make a mistake in my order. The foods are so good. You never have to go to the market, really. You could do everything with farm to table. I wish they delivered outside of New York City, but they don't at the moment. 
But get this, when I told the farm to table people that I love their company and would mention them in the podcast, they offered all our listeners and readers a $10 discount on their first orders with the code Lisa Birnbach. That's right, my name in all caps. You can't beat that. And number five, learning about being black. What is happening in America is an upheaval that is long overdue. I feel I've been hiding behind a veil of of ignorance. I haven't seen what really goes on in this country. And my job now is to think and study and really pay attention. You've been listening to Five Things That Make Life Better with me, Lisa Birnbach. My guest this week has been Jeff Vespa, director of the film Voices of Parkland, which you can find online. If you enjoyed this podcast, please subscribe and rate and review us on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. My blog is at lisabirnbach.com where you'll find links and photos connected to everything we discussed today. The podcast is produced in New York City by thefieldtv.com. My engineer is Kevin Watkins. My team is Spressa Orucci, Michael Port, Boko Haft, and Sam Haft. Until next week, be kind to yourself and act natural. Bye-bye. That was Five Things with Lisa Birnbach. New episodes every Friday, if she remembers.